The reading this morning is taken from the book of Nehemiah and chapter 5. Sorry, it should have been Claire reading this uh, to you this morning. She's otherwise engaged in K4C, but having read the chapter, I didn't think the irony was not lost on me that you've got one chartered accountant reading it and then another chartered accountant preaching about it. That may become clear as we get through this chapter. So if you're reading from the, uh, the, the Bibles in the seats, it's page 489, and if you're reading on the screen, it's behind me. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless, because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, Steve has set you up to expect a deluge of accounting. Um, I promise to try and make it uh, a little little less like that than it might otherwise be. But I must admit, when I saw... Um, you know, debt, investment, working practices, uh, corrupt markets. I thought it's just like a day in the office, really. So, uh, but, uh, oh dear. Uh, another day in the office as I depreciate the equipment rather more rapidly than it was intended to be. Right, okay, it's just a play with the furniture. Put that in a safer pocket. Okay, now, so, um, the poor and the broken. Um, Nehemiah, and there's also a passage in Mark which um, you can have a, have a look at as well. I think I might have got that uh, chapter reference wrong, actually. Is it right? It's right? Okay, that's good. 
was sort of typing this yesterday, and a uh, strange thing happened when you're playing on the computer, but that's okay. Um, so what have we got here? We've got, a, we've got an interesting situation. You remember this whole uh, sort of story. Nehemiah has come to um, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is a, a fairly terrible state. The walls have... Uh, sort of fallen down, be allowed to fall down, probably knocked down in places. And he has come with this uh, project to rebuild the walls. And you'll remember it's a, it's a state-sponsored project. He's been sort of uh, partially funded and uh, certainly given significant political support um, by the king back in the sort of the heart of the empire. Um, and there's a degree of political opposition and quite a lot of sort of disputing going on. In the last chapter, uh, chapter 4, that we were looking at um, last week, um, of course, you then got uh, all the people having to do the building while they were also carrying arms and sort of defending themselves. So it's a very difficult situation. Let's have a look at the first slide. Now, we've got here a divided society. We've got stressful jobs and the threat of terrorism. We've got poverty, people trapped by debt. People in low-paid, zero-hours jobs and paying taxes, even if they're very poor. It's always strange, isn't it, how irrelevant the Old Testament seems <laughs> to, uh, to modern society. Rich people abusing their economic power. That's what was going on here. So you had, you had the rich people who obviously uh, had the money, had the grain and whatever they were charging very high rates of interest. And if you read the text very carefully, it talks about them giving back one hundredth. So there was a 1% interest rate being charged. Now, uh, I couldn't see this in the passage, but some of the commentaries I read said that was 1% a month, which is 12% a year. Um, which doesn't sound that high, but that's a lot, certainly in our current economic environment, um, where you can, you can usually borrow for quite a lot less than that. So there was quite a lot of interest being charged the people had various choices in terms of sort of how to, how to fund things. One of the ways of doing it was to give one or more of your children into what was effectively slavery. It wasn't necessarily quite called that, but they had to work to help pay off the debt, or they gave their labour in effect as the interest payment. Now, obviously, if they're just giving their labour as payment for interest, then that situation is really never going to come to an end, because you're not paying down the debt, you're simply paying the interest. So you might give away one of your children to do that. The secondary advantage, of course, is that you've then got one less mouth to feed. And again, if you read the passage, you'll see that it talks about some of them having very large families and struggling uh, to feed their families. And they were trapped in this situation because once you've sort of given some of your children away, they're productive within your family, you've given away your land to raise money, and then if your crops aren't as productive, very quickly you get into this spiral of debt that we can see in the UK and we can certainly see elsewhere in the world where people get economically trapped in servitude. It's not called slavery, uh, but economically you are caught in that poverty trap and there is not necessarily any way out of it. Clearly they were under a lot of stress. They were permanently under the threat of attack from outside the walls, very similar to the sort of mental stress that, that many of us may feel we're living under at the moment with the threat of terrorism. Or, of course, if you live in other parts of the world and we think about um, southern Sudan and places like that uh, where Pauline works and we think about Uganda um, where Rob and Jen work uh, and a lot of countries in Africa have a uh, very real threat of terrorism and civil war. So, again, 
this situation is, is by no means sort of uh, unusual throughout history. So that's the situation that Nehemiah faces. And just a, a brief aside, because Nehemiah quotes the law to the rich people. He says, you know, you are going against God. And if we have a look at the next point, it's just worth thinking a little bit about what Jewish law says on lending. Now, sometimes I think we, uh, we imagine that Jewish law actually bans lending. Um, it doesn't. Um, but what it does say is that the way that you lend should be uh, godly, if you like. It should be according to God's standard. And there were various laws laid out in the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, that, that established how you should do it. Um, Exodus 22 says interest must not be charged when lending to the poor. So you can charge interest, but you can't charge it to poor people. So if you have a commercial relationship, merchant to merchant, farmer to farmer, something like that, then interest is a perfectly legitimate way of saying I'm going to effectively rent you something. I'm going to rent you my machine, I'm going to rent you my money, I'm going to rent you my crop, and you will pay me a fee for borrowing that. And the Bible says that's perfectly okay. Jewish law says that's perfectly okay. But not when lending to the poor. Leviticus says if someone becomes poor, then you must stop charging interest. And food must be supplied at cost. So there's a sort of social justice that God is trying to establish here that says debt potentially is a, is a good thing. Let's just pause and think about that for a second. There's a very interesting book I'm reading at the moment called um, How to Talk About Economics with My Daughter or something like that. It's written by uh, an ex-Greek finance minister. I haven't tested it on my daughters yet, so I don't know whether it really works, but um, he describes debt as um, borrowing from your future self, time travel for money. It's quite an interesting way of thinking of it. So if you think about this for a moment, so... You know, at the moment, you want to buy something, a car, a washing machine, or a holiday, or whatever it may be. You haven't right now got the money, because you've been spending that on food and rent and other stuff. But you know, over the course of the rest of the year, you will earn more money than your rent and your food and all the rest of it. And maybe at the Christmas time or something, you know your employer usually gives you a bonus, and you can sort of, you can see and hope that your company's doing very well, that your job is going well, and you'll get a bit more. So what you can do is you can take all the extra money you'll accumulate over the year and the bonus at the end, and you can make it travel back in time to today. And of course you do that by going to a friend or a relative or a bank and saying, I'm going to be richer in the future, give me that money now. Now you can probably already spot the slight flaw in that equation or the risk because of course I'm going to be really rich in the future give me the money now if I'm just operating on a fantasy then if you give me the money now on the basis I'll be really rich in the future and you'll get it back you're a fool and I will have your money and I will have consumed it so that's where the sort of constraints around lending come in but if we're all behaving sensibly so if I'm borrowing a small amount of money then I can get the money now when I need it, do something with it now when it helps, and become more productive now when it's a good thing to do, rather than waiting into the future. That's the advantage of, of debt, if you like, of lending, that you can shift 
when people get the resources. So the Bible's not saying don't lend. It's just saying don't abuse people. Don't take advantage of your economic power. Now Deuteronomy puts a bit of a twist on this, which again Nehemiah refers to in what he's talking about. It says you must not charge your brother interest, you can charge a foreigner interest. So uh, there seems to be some sort of um, racial or cultural dynamic to this that you shouldn't charge Jewish people interest, but you could charge the non-Jew interest. And there's a huge, huge sort of Levitical debate, uh, rabbinical debate around that for, well, ever since uh, that particular verse was written. And that has then gone into Christian circles as well as to whether Christians shouldn't charge each other interest but can charge Jews interest, for example, if we exclude them from the brotherhood. And you can see what an absolute minefield you get to. So I'm going to largely ignore that one because I think it's contentious and difficult and not what we want to concentrate on. Nehemiah was particularly focused on the first two. So what did he do? Well, he got angry. Let's have a look at the next slide. He got very angry. It's, it's unusual, actually. I'm not sure, maybe, uh, maybe you know, but how many verses there are where it describes the, the proponent in the, in the Bible as getting very angry. Jesus got angry with the people in the temple. Didn't actually describe him as getting very angry, if I remember. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm not reading the original Greek, which I'm not, but I was struck by very angry. He was enraged. This injustice really got him going. And I wondered why, and I think part of it is because he'd travelled hundreds, maybe even over a thousand miles, a long, long way. He'd taken huge personal and sort of political risks and was now living in this extremely stressful, difficult situation because he had a vision that this is what God wanted him to do and what God wanted the people to do. And he had a vision of a united Jewish nation rebuilding the walls as an act of worship to God. That was what he was envisioning. And it was being poisoned by people who were taking advantage of their brothers, of their fellow Jews, of their fellow worshippers, their fellow members of the family of God. So these people were poisoning God's project. Now the interesting thing is that um, he pondered. He's a pretty cool guy, isn't he really, Nehemiah? I mean, he's, he's just very, very astute. And actually not surprising when you think he was cup-bearer to the king. He's like a really, really clever, bright, politically astute senior manager, civil service sort of type, type person. He's, he's really good at what he does. He gets very angry, but he ponders. It doesn't say, but given what we know about Nehemiah, we can be pretty sure that that pondering involved praying. As he wasn't the sort of guy who just went off on his own and worked it out. Generally speaking, he brought it before God. So what was he sort of concerned about? He was concerned about God's law. So there's a social justice aspect to it, but he's not just coming up with political sort of thinking on his own. It's focused on what he knows God wants for his people. He wants to right wrongs, but he doesn't just want to go and, you know, very tempting if you're sort of watching a, a film or something like that. You know, the temptation would be Nehemiah sees injustice, um, actually does a bit like what Moses did. Do you remember Moses? 
when he was still an Egyptian prince. Do you remember that incident? What did he do? He saw injustice and he killed the overseer. Moses and Nehemiah are interesting contrasting characters. So Moses' reaction, injustice, wallop. No injustice, problem sorted. Uh, No, Moses, because there's tomorrow. Consequences. Nehemiah sees injustice, ponders, prays, and then wants to work out a sustainable way to right the wrong. So he doesn't just want to go and have a big argument with one particularly egregious moneylender. He doesn't want to just take him and his horse-riding henchmen. Remember, Nehemiah is the sort of the armed authority in this as well. He's the soldier with the soldiers. He could just go around to these moneylenders, chop a few heads off, or hands, or whatever he wanted to do, or just force them at sword point to return the money. That's not what he does. He goes around and just talks to them. Again, if you read the passage carefully, it says he, he talks to them first. That one guesses doesn't produce the result, or maybe he just wants the whole thing to be seen to be much more public. Either way, he then calls a meeting of all the people, gets them together, involves the whole community in the solution. All based around God's law. All based around Nehemiah's relationship um, with God. And then the other thing, and again, this passage doesn't actually uh, talk about it uh, in the bit that we read, but um, if you go on and uh, read later in chapter, chapter 5, Nehemiah actually sort of writes about what happened later and how he behaved as a governor of the Jewish people and how he acted out social justice by not overtaxing people and by not sort of living off corrupt, corruption and bribery and by giving to people who needed it. And one imagines that he was already doing that at the time. It wasn't something that just happened to him later. So he's leading by example. Incredibly important if you're going to lead a group of people like Nehemiah was, that you are consistent and not hypocritical, that you can't be criticised based on the standards that you're asking other people to follow. So God is at the heart of this. God's law is the underpinning for everything that Nehemiah um, is trying to do. So that's Nehemiah. So he's in a situation where there's a sort of a divided society, there's social injustice, people working in situations which are uh, effectively abusive, close to being indentured servitude. Uh, They have uh, no guarantees. And of course, in this, uh, this state of Israel, there was no sort of health service or social security or anything like that. Everybody was on a zero hours contract. Um, Again, think about the parable Jesus tells of the man hiring workers in the marketplace. And you walked into the marketplace and you said, who wants a job? And you just hired people then. And if you didn't need them, you didn't go into the marketplace. So everybody was operating in that sort of high-risk way. They were far worse off in many ways um, than we are today. So how does this apply to us? What can we do um, with this? Let's have a look at the next slide. Let's have a look at the next slide. Next slide will come along um, at some moment. Um, I was struck by um, one of the, the, well, a couple of the songs that we were singing first thing this morning, um, and also actually the confession 
um, that we prayed together, um, which uh, I expect you probably picked deliberately. Um, and there's a very strong focus coming through there that, um, you know, we don't live by bread alone. We don't get our lives from life, from working, from relationships, from sort of gathering stuff together. We've all got a lot of stuff. We're all clothed. You should be grateful I am. I'm quite grateful you are as well. Uh, Most of us are clothed very nicely, so well done. We've got a lot of stuff. We're wearing it. We're accruing it. We've got a church full of lovely chairs. We've got cars. We've got houses. We've got food. And it's very, very easy to get swept up in the idea that that's what life's about. Life's about getting more comfortable. Sue's doing a counselling course at the moment, and one of the things that comes up on a regular basis is your sort of hierarchy of needs. And once you've met the basic needs, then, then what are you doing? You've got food, you've got shelter, you've got safety. Do you need more than that? Human relationships, okay? Once you've got those, what else do you need? More money, two cars, a holiday home? Not really. But we continue to pursue those sorts of of things. And the Bible is really saying there's more to life than that. So how should we think about what Nehemiah was doing with the Israelites? Well, now I'm not uh, disagreeing with what Carl was saying earlier in terms of giving. But I'm saying, look, don't just give. And, and I, I was struck by what you said about giving online, because I've just recently sort of reconfigured our giving, so it all goes through a charity's aid account, which is very neat, easy to administer. It's all online. It's all lovely. And you set up a monthly transfer into that, and then that sort of dings out the money to charities um, elsewhere. It's great. But the risk is that now I can ignore that. Because every month it goes out, and provided... I didn't quite need that money. I won't notice it too much. And then if you think about the charities, where it goes to. And I was struck actually by that yesterday when I was sort of trying to make sure it was working properly. And I suddenly thought to myself, yeah, I do need to keep thinking about this automated system that I've set up. So don't just just give. And certainly don't just sort of give in a way that means that you're not conscious of what's going on. But I think what the Bible is really telling us to do is to invest. It says in Psalm 112, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Now, the Bible was uh, quite sort of focused on lending, and it talks quite a lot about lending. What I would encourage you to think about more is the New Testament and the parable of the talents and doing something more than just lending. You remember the parable of the talents? Anybody remind us how many servants were there and what did they get given? Quick pop quiz on Sunday school knowledge. Three servants. Five, two, one. Yep. So there were three servants, there was a very rich guy, and he gave them five talents, two talents, and one talent. Now I looked up what a talent was worth. Some other um, versions describe it as a bag of gold. 
It was about 30 to 35 kilos of gold. 35 bags of flour or sugar containing gold. That's a lot of gold. At the current gold rate, this is not an investment recommendation, things can go up and down. The current gold rate, that's about 1.4 million pounds per talent. So the guy who got five was given seven million pounds to invest by his Lord. The one who got one was given 1.4 million, and you can begin to understand why he got a bit stressed. If you were given 1.4 million pounds by Philip Green, not necessarily the nicest man, but quite successful, and he said to you, here's 1.4 million pounds, I'm gonna come back at some indeterminate point in the future, and I want you to have done something with it. There is a man that you might think is not very nice, is not very sort of forgiving, and would be very, very, very upset if you lost it. So the temptation to bury it is huge. That's safe. That's not investing. That's saving. And paradoxically, economists will tell you saving's actually bad. But we haven't got time to discuss that. <laughs> but you can see it was bad for the, for the guy who buried the money. Because when he got back, it was taken off him by the master and given to the guy who had the five. Because the guy had five, seven million pounds. He doubled it. Now, if I was to give you five pounds and say, can you double that in the next two months? You probably wouldn't find it too much of a stretch. If I was to give you five million and say, can you double it in the next two months, that actually would be very difficult. Just as an aside, one of the things we look at at work is how successful people are at generating more money from money. But we don't actually count the amount of money they generate. We count their success rate. So the person who had five and doubled it to ten... His success rate was that he doubled it. The person who had two ended up with four and again doubled it. So as fund managers, to make it completely work example for a moment, they were equally successful. They both doubled the money they were given and they got the rewards accordingly. Whereas the guy who buried it, complete failure. Zero return on his money. So what's all that telling us? What's the context for us? You're not being given five million. You're being given something far, far more valuable. You've been given eternal life. So what are we called to do with this gift of grace that we have been given, with this eternal, enduring, ever-fulfilling relationship? Well, I think we're called to invest not to lend, because lending implies you want to get it back and that your strongest focus is getting it back intact. I lend you my car, I don't want you to crash it, scratch it, make it dirty, damage it, race it too hard. I want it back in the same condition I gave it to you. 
Whereas if I help you buy a car that we are together going to use, we have a mutual shared interest. The difference between sort of lending and investing is investing involves creating a risk, taking a risk to create a shared future. It's about being alongside people. It's about relationship. And we don't have to invest money. And actually, in many ways, investing money is a very, very poor way of doing it. Because that's hands-off. I, I give money to charities. I could invest money in exactly that same automated way. Every month, money goes out of the account, goes into some central admin, and off it goes. Bosh, bosh, bosh. I would never know. That's pretty useless in the context of what God is talking to us about. God wants us to invest ourselves in other people. Because he has invested himself in us. God has invested his very essence. He gave his life. He broke apart that relationship in the Trinity at that moment of the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God gave up everything for us to bring us into that relationship with him. And he wants us to pass that on, to invest in others, to invest our time, to invest our love, to invest our care, to invest our relationship with Jesus in other people. So that, I think, is the, the message from Nehemiah and what he was doing, bringing the Jews back together. It's about restoration, restoring relationships, healing and empowering. And that's what God has done for us. He has restored our relationship with him at huge cost to himself. And that's what he wants us to do in turn. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for people like Nehemiah. We thank you for the example of somebody who got very angry but pondered and spent time with you. Lord, we know how angry you are about sin and broken relationships and injustice. But we know you ponder and work with us. And Lord, we want to be open to your leading. We want to invest of ourselves just as you have invested in us. In Jesus' name.